Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Well, today we're diving into the book of Haggai, and we're just in here for a couple of weeks, um, because Haggai is actually a really short book. Uh, but it's a great book and we can get a lot out of it and obviously all of Scripture. Um, but just, you know, the Bible's made up of 66 books. We've got the New Testament, we've got the Old Testament. The New Testament's got 27 books. We've got the four Gospels, which are kind of biographical, biographical accounts of um, Jesus and what He did when He was here. Then the Acts of the Apostles. Then we've got 14 Pauline epistles, which is 14 letters written by Paul. And then five general letters just written by other people to um, other places. And then one prophetic book, the book of Revelations. Uh, And then in the Old Testament, there's the other 39. We've got the five books of the law, and then we've got uh, 12 um, historical account books, so kind of just listing history, going through history. Then we've got five uh, wisdom and poetry books, five major prophets and five minor prophets. And if you're wondering what makes a major prophet and what makes a minor prophet, a major prophet is big and a minor prophet is short, just in length, not in stature or anything like that. Or they might have been, that would be awesome if they if that kind of correlated in some way. Um, but what, the book of Haggai is set, uh, it has a background kind of 520 to 580, well 587 to 520 BC. Uh, and so I'll, you can read about it, the setting, the historical context in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25. But I'm just going to give you the Cliff's Notes version this morning. And because it's, it's somewhat hard to follow just because there's all these different names that we've never heard of. And so to try and connect with these people, I have done a felt board for you. Kind of, sort of. We've got some slides. You are gonna, your mind is going to be blown and you're going to think you're back in Sunday school. So that's going to be fantastic. Uh, so firstly, we're, we're talking about, um, obviously back then there was uh, the times of the judges, which really with our modern thinking, judges is confusing. So let's just call them leaders because that's what they did. They led the nation. We think of judges as, you know, the people who um, are judiciaries over the system and they were that as well, but essentially they led the nation. And what would happen is if they were good, the nation was good. Um, and oh no, sorry, they were always good. The leaders of the nation were always good because God would raise them up. And what would happen is that the country would go bad. They'd start doing everything else that the nations around them were doing. And then God would raise up a leader, bring them back to their senses, lead them into victory. And then they'd go bad again. You'd have peace for a certain amount of time, usually 40 years, the Bible says, and then they'd go bad again. And eventually, if everyone could just clear their throat now on the count of three, one, two, three. Yeah, it's always good. Um, the, um, if you could, yeah, so then what would happen is that, the, well, what did happen is, we want a king. We want a king of our own. And, uh, and God said, but that's what's different about us. I'm your king. This is a theocracy. I, 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 like you've got the heaven being your king. And they're like, yeah, it's not around us. And we would look at that and go, but you had God as your king. Like that's madness. Why would you want the people like the nation around you? But I think we get this because, we say and we want God to be our everything. We want Jesus to be our best friend. We want Him to be our everything. But then we also want a spouse that we can cuddle. Like we, we say, oh yes, Jesus, you, you're my everything. But, but then we're still praying because we want someone, we want a best friend. Jesus, you're my best friend, but I, I want a best friend that I can laugh with. And like, yeah, I know I can laugh with you, Jesus, but I want one that I can see. So we get this, we understand it. And even though, you know, even though we go, you guys are crazy. Why would you want a man for a king when you can have God for your king? we should essentially be able to empathise with this situation. So they wanted a king. We want a king. We want a king. And God said, well, I'll give you what you want. And as the king went, so the nation went. It's always the case, always the way. 
As the principal is, so a school goes. If you're a teacher, you know that to be true. As the boss is, so the workplace goes. You know that to be true. As the Connect Group leader is, so goes the Connect Group. As the leader goes, so goes the nation. And so bad king, detestable practices, awful things happen, the nation gets run into the ground. Good king, time of peace, time of prosperity, time of turning back to God. Bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king. We come to the place of a bad king called King Jehoiakim. He was a bad king. And Jehoiakim, as you can see, like those eyebrows suggest immediately bad. And so he was a bad king. Um, and what happened was that because he was a bad king, then he was not favoured by God. He wasn't protected by God. And Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jehoiakim's land, which was Israel. And so I think we've got, a, yeah, here he is. And so then he makes Jehoiakim his vassal, which is a fake king. He makes him, he keeps him there, but he says, you're just fakey. I'm the real ruler and I own you. And so Jehoiakim says, I don't want to be owned by you. I want to be my own ruler again. And he rises up in rebellion. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, you got this coming to you, boy. And what happens is that everyone around them invades Jehoiakim, invades Israel, and he is taken down. Uh, he is replaced by his son, very confusingly, Jehoiachim. And Jehoiachim um, then is captured by Nebuchadnezzar. And so then Nebuchadnezzar um, continues to reign. Jeho then after that, Zedekiah comes and rules the land. And, uh, and it's, I obviously was getting sick of doing slides by this point, so I just put everything on the one slide. Um, so um, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, Zedekiah was like, no, I will not bow to you, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm gonna be my own king. I'm gonna rule this nation. Nebuchadnezzar was like, I tried a vassal king. I tried to capture the sun. Now I'm taking you down. And he put fire to the nation. He took them all and put them into slavery, destroyed the temple, destroyed the book of the law, destroyed everything, plundered, pillaged, everything that you can imagine and, and put fire to the nation and took Israel off into slaves. Enter King Cyrus. And King Cyrus, also known as Darius, again, putting everything on one slide now. Uh, eventually, we read about him in Ezra. And so I'm going to tell you what happened when King Cyrus came because this, Ezra chapter one, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that it might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So his Cyrus, also um, some scholars believe is the King Darius uh, that we read about that um, with Daniel. Uh, but Cyrus, God actually turns his heart for his people. So I think just for a start, that should give us great joy and peace that God is always in control. We might have people ruling us that don't know God. Um, praise God right now, we have a Prime Minister that's Christian, but, but that might not be comfort to you because of his policies. I, I, I've no political persuasion here from the pulpit. But, um, but regardless, um, God is in control. God instates rulers, God takes rulers down, so we can know that. In the, um, so verse two, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdom of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. So an ungodly king has been charged with building God a house, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, which is in Judah. Whoever among you is of his people, may his God be with him. So he's talking to the slaves now. Let him go up to Jerusalem. I release you to go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So 
King Cyrus is taking up a catalyst offering for the house of God, of a God that is not his God. Then it rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's all those guys. Yay, let's go rebuild the house of the Lord. And the whole assembly together was 42,360 beside their male and female servants, as whom there were 7,307. And they had 200 male and female singers. So singers, just remember how important your job is. If you're a worship leader or you're gifted to sing in this place, that actually you have great importance in proclaiming victory and having things happen. The horses were 736. The mules were 245. Like for me, that was a mind-blowing moment this week. Horses and mules are in two different categories. What? The camels were 135 and the donkeys... 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 miners of silver and 100 priest garments. So King Cyrus has enabled them to head back and rebuild the land and the temple. And this is where Haggai is. Because something happens between this great joy and between this great enthusiasm and between this king um, enabling everyone to get back and start to rebuild the temple, which is all they wanted to do, something happens. And we take up the story in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius, or Cyrus, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet of Zerubbabel, son of Governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Bozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So at some point, the people who were so excited and so happy and so ready say, oh, we're not ready to rebuild the house of the Lord. Thus, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while the house lies in ruins. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, harvested little. You eat, but have never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. So there's this gravitational pull that I'm sure we all feel where we start out with enthusiasm and life about the house of God and about the things of God, but this gravitational pull that sucks us back into my own panelled house and making sure that that's okay and making sure that my life is okay. So it would be an easy segue right now to go, well, the temple, Lord, you know, it wasn't being rebuilt. So now for us, you know, as we do this first part going deeper, we always go to the text and let the text read itself and what the text means is what we pull out of it. And, uh, and so what we do here is, is look at that and say, well, that meant that for them and so it did. But what does it mean for us as New Testament Christians? And it would be such an easy segue for me just to go to, well, we need to look after the house of God. We need to forget, you know, not worry about ourselves so much and look after the house of God. But if I were to be speaking like that, I'd be speaking in error because I'd be referring to the temple, the new temple as this building and the activities that take place here. And that's not what the New Testament is talking about at all. In fact, the temple that it's talking about is us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says that you yourselves are the temple of God. So that's a little bit trickier because what we stop looking after ourselves to look after ourselves. You yourselves are the temple of God. Oh yeah, like I know I know my body is a temple because like I only eat fruit and vegetables and like I really got to look after my chakra and um and like I got to be like keep out all those negative vibes because like my body is a temple and I really need to take care of it. 
Well, no, that's not what this is talking about either. Because even when the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, which is a different word, soma, which means flesh, that's talking about your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. And sure, if we pluck that verse out of context, we could kind of go, yeah, you really need to eat better and sleep better and look after the temple. But in that context, it's talking about sexual immorality. It says that, don't you know that if you practice sexual immorality, that you sin against your own body? And if you're someone who has been struggling in that way, you know this to be true. You know this to be true. You know that, that it might feel good at the time, but later you feel like you've hurt yourself. You feel like this inner ugh, yourself. And so I'm saying, take care of your body. It's valuable, worth something. So yes, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, flesh, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, do you not realise that you altogether are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? That's talking about you, me, we, us. We together right now are the temple of God. And do we, do we attribute the proper gravity and weight to that? I don't know about you, so I'm obviously a bit of a, you, some of you know, I'm an extroverted introvert. I get to the end of a Sunday, third service, about 10 minutes after PM service, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm listening to you, but I can't understand a word you're saying, and I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> I really, really care. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, sometimes it's really hard to engage in that way and to feel like this is actually so important, more important than me, myself and mine, because there's this gravitational pull that constantly takes us to our panelled houses to look after me. And it's why we'd read into Scripture so easily, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I have to look after that when that's not actually what Scripture is saying. It says that we ourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? When the temple initially was built, It was filled with fire and smoke and cloud and God showed up in the midst. And there's something about us looking after each other, though we are not like each other and though naturally we may not even like each other, that God shows up in the midst of us taking care and looking after more than me, myself and mine. So church, we're meant to be the temple and I get it. I get it if you feel like it's hard, Bron. Look at that person. If I saw them down the street, if I met them in a pub, we would never automatically click. And I get it. (laughs) I feel it every time I walk in. Just kidding. (laughs) I totally get it. But that's the beauty of the temple of God is that he brings a bunch of people together, different walks of life, different races, different creeds, different colours and says, I want to show something beautiful in you. I want to show something together, unified, and I want to command a blessing where you are. And so... Let's learn from Haggai today and let's not feel that gravitational pull just to looking after me, myself and mine, but instead lean in to the house of God, which is us. Okay, well, if you wiggled around, go find your comfy seat again. Oh, look how like immediately you were paying attention. I'm so impressed right now. Okay, well, uh, we are entering the going forward section of what we're looking at. And um, I'd like to speak today on the concept of living frustrated um, from what Bron has actually just read out from Haggai 1 verse 6, which Andrew says, Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. 
You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages but only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Has anyone else felt that particular one <laughs> deeply? <laughs> um, do you ever feel like you're living a little bit frustrated? Like, sure, you have food, have a little bit of money, have shelter, but it feels sometimes like a, a little fruitless, a little bit like not quite getting to where I want it to be. Like things appear good and you get hopeful, but it's like a mirage almost. It kind of fades the closer you get to it. Maybe, um, maybe that looks like business opportunities for you. You thought you were on your way to something and then poof, it just the opportunity disappeared. Or maybe it's a promising relationship or a promotion or a change in work that's positive for you. It's, it's there, it's there, you can almost taste it and then it kind of just disappears. Well, today I'd like to give you three things to consider as we explore living frustrated. And the first one is to carefully consider carefully consider. Haggai 1 verse 5 says, give careful thought to your ways. Proverbs 6 has advice for a situation where um, someone has gone guarantor for their neighbor and their neighbor is not paying and now they're in all sorts. And the wise teacher says, hey, humble yourself and get something done. It reads like this, Proverbs 6 verse 6 to 8, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provision summer and gathers its food at harvest. You know, the first thing if you're living in frustration is to examine your ways. Carefully consider what might be contributing to the way that you're feeling. What what maybe are you contributing to the way that you're feeling? Um, it's so easy to find reasons. Oh, look, the coach's son's mate always gets picked for the best position. That should be my position. Or um, maybe the boss goes um, and plays golf with their granddad. That's why I'm not getting my due at work. Or they're racist. That's why I'm not getting my opportunity. Now, any of those things could be true. They could be true. But before you go to the default, first examine yourself. Carefully consider what might be the reasons for why you are living frustrated. Let's take some ownership of the life that we live. Number two, hands, head, heart. Okay, that's easy to remember, hands, head, heart. Um, Continuing on with that, what might it be that is frustrating you? So consider what you're doing, what you're doing, what you're thinking, and what you're feeling. And there might be very practical reasons for why you feel frustrated. For instance, have you considered how you're treating your body? Bron touched on it earlier. It actually matters a little bit how you treat your body. It has an impact on how you do, how you think, and how you feel. Bron just mentioned the scripture in 1 Corinthians 6.19 about how a body is really, really important. And I want you to think about Elijah. When he ran out of energy, despite all he'd been through on the mountain at Carmel, he arrived at a place where he felt useless, spent, and worn out. Elijah did. Like, if he can feel that way, we can definitely be susceptible to feeling that way. Um, 
what happened next as he was on the ground trying to find the will to go on. God actually sent ministry to him. He sent the ministry of rest and he sent the ministry of no. In other words, he had a good sleep and a good feed. That is something that we are in control of, that we can do. Um, He'd been running on adrenaline and the time had now come to take care of some physical needs. Is that where you're at maybe? Is that contributing to a feeling of frustration? Are there some physical markers that you're ignoring and, and they have you feeling that level of frustration over stuff you never used to feel frustrated about? It's a really good question to ask yourself. And even things are going well around you. You can't get out of the funk you're in. Have you ever felt that way? Well, think about the practical things that you can feed your body, the basics that God has given us, sleep, nutrition, exercise. Don't you hate when stuff sounds too simple? Like you kind of want the answer to be super complex that only geniuses can work out and that's why you're missing it. (laughs) But often when I'm in a funk, it's because basic, basic things that I already know how to do and I just am not doing them. (laughs) So that's your hands and your physical body, the shell we're in the external. Now, how about your head? How about your mindset? Frustration can be caused by the thoughts that we allow to dominate our headspace. And with discipline, that can actually be righted. Again, oh, damn, that's really simple, but really hard to do at the same time for me anyway. Science actually says that our brains hold on to negativity like Velcro and positivity like Teflon. It just slides straight off. And you might know that to be true if on some front you get mountains of wonderful feedback and then one person says one negative thing to you one time and that's the thing you carry with you for the rest of the day, year, decade, <laughs> depending on how bad it was. You may post and get 100 thumbs up and heart reactions, but someone has done a face and you aren't sure why and that messes with your head for ages. It's never happened to me. Um, the good news is that we can correct that. And imagine if we did. Imagine what that would look like if we disciplined ourselves to focus on the good and let go of the bad. That's exactly what Philippians 4.8 tells us to do. And so many of us already know it. But the question is, why are we doing it? So let this be a challenge for you today to ask yourself. Philippians 4.8, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Don't let me forget this. You need to know this. When all is said and done, brothers and sisters, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Even just reading that list is making me happier. (laughs) Can you imagine how life-changing that would be if that was the dialogue in our mind? if we would make a habit of that. It says right there that it actually requires fixing. It uses the word fix. It will take discipline. It will take do-overs. And it will take consistency. Fix. And then verse 9. Keep putting in practice, practice, all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Yes, please. The God of peace. That's the life we want. Peace in the storms. Peace in the midst of things not happening or happening too much and too often. Peace and frustration. Have you ever found that they cannot coexist? 
<laughs> they cannot coexist. So while we're waiting for the things we want to see happen, let's work on the things that we can see happen, which is the change of mindset. Physical considerations, mental considerations, and finally, heart considerations. Are we allowing stuff in our heart that then creates frustration in us? We know from Proverbs to guard our hearts, right? Again, darn it, we already know the answer. From our hearts flow all the issues of life. So is there unforgiveness? What are the internal reasons? What's the internal environment like? Does anybody know the old Sunday school song? Um, I don't know it. Can you sing it? Do you know it? Woo! She is that good. <laughs> But it's actually true. There are things in our heart that though they may, that there may be a harvest in so many areas, great harvest gets stolen and frustrated because we are envious of someone else or we're spending time comparing to someone else or we're jealous of their success and we think we deserve better things. Things residing in our heart that keep us frustrated, right? Because if we're living like that, if we're letting that take root in our heart, like they've got it better, we've got it worse, that is not an environment that is going to produce peace. It is an environment that is going to produce frustration over frustration over frustration. So praise God for the Holy Spirit, yeah? <laughs> Galatians 5, 19 to 21 tells us that these awful things follow when we follow the desires of our own self. But the fruit of the Spirit brings something different. It brings love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness. All these wonderful fruits that come from guarding our hearts and cultivating surrender to our God. He brings the rest. And so, having considered our ways, and then our physical, our mindset, and our hearts, there's only one thing left to do. That is number three, keep calm and carry on. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. When I was pregnant, if anyone knows the Nemo movie, I was really super duper forgetful and um, I was trying to explain. Unfortunately, at a party in a lull in conversation, so most people heard me, when I said, I feel like that fish that forgets things all the time. And to this day, my husband still refers to me as Dory. So, <laughs> I know that song well. <laughs> Galatians 6, 9. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. How good is that? We will reap a harvest. You will reap a harvest. Don't give in to frustration. Just keep swimming. Ephesians 6 talks about the armour of God and what we need to equip ourselves with and how to use the weapons that he has given us. But it comes down to having done all to stand. And I love that verse. Um, let me read it to you. Ephesians 6.13. Therefore put on the whole armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, or can I say even the day of frustration, because if we're talking about the day of evil, anything less than the day of evil can also come under that category. <laughs> The day of frustration, you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, don't give up. 
keep going. You can hit. If if Steve if Stephen Bradbury taught us anything, it's that we can win gold if you'll just stay on your feet. Right? Having done all, stand. There's there's some things that we can do in the waiting and in the frustration. And I love how um, this same verse is paraphrased in the message. It says, take all the help you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that when it is all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them throughout your life. Interesting list, isn't it? So much to do with our mindset getting those settings right and focusing on truth, righteousness, peace rather than frustration, faith that God is in control and salvation, keeping the main thing about the main thing, even in the waiting. All of these help us to stay on our feet. So here's a verse that you may not be as keen on. (laughs) 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. Isn't that interesting? Do your job. Stop worrying about everyone else. Get on with it. Let everything else be God's business. When we hand our lives over in that family, we will release a little of this pent-up frustration that we may be carrying around with us, yeah? So um, when all else is done, stand. I might actually ask you to stand as I pray for you, just symbolically. I want you on your feet in a, in a posture of... <laughs> No matter what's going on, God, I stand. Let me pray. Let me pray for you. Father God, we just thank you so much that you are a God who is in control. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, that you are present amongst us, Lord God, that we don't do this alone ever. We are never alone. You are with us, Lord God. And the fruit of your Holy Spirit equips us to continue to stay on our feet, no matter what is happening in our circumstances, Lord God. Our circumstances need to be subjected to who you are as King and Lord of our lives, Lord God. And so for those of us who have frustrating circumstances right now, I lift them up before you. I ask that you would shift our perspective. Show us what it is that we can contribute to making a change. But God, we leave the rest to you, trusting you, knowing that good things, good things are in our future. Lord God, you are in control. We make you sovereign over this thing. In Jesus' name, we trust you. Amen. Amen. Hey again. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.